Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Hello everyone, it's Brendan here with markvetgurus.com. The place to go, the place to be, the place to look for previous episodes and topics you may or may not be interested in. It is episode 78, 12th of April is the week ending of. And well, Mark, I'm, I'm not going to tell you a whole big blurb of what I've been up to. I've been fairly sort of busy-ish with work and um, running around doing a little bit of um, teaching on the supposed days off. Um, I hear you have been bush again um, looking at some birdies. I have, and you know, as much as you like staying at work and and uh, doing the teaching stuff, I'm always keen to get out there in the scrub and see what I can find. And I did have a weekend um, down in the Capity Valley, uh, just uh, a little bit north of um, Lithgow in New South Wales on the western side of the Wollamai National Park. Um, and, uh, uh, um, and it's always a great spot for birding. And um, one species that I hadn't... Uh, um, seen before the rock warbler, a, a uh, um, new, the only New South Wales endemic, the only bird that's only found in New South Wales. Um, I got some uh, great views and some great shots. So um, all in all, a lovely weekend. And, and this time, um, it was e- additionally exciting because um, the the uh, the instructors. It was a photography workshop, and the instructors I went with were. Um, a bit more expansive, Brendan. They, uh, they normally we sort of really focus on the birds, and they take a bit of focusing on. We're only there for two and a half days, but um, we managed to pick up a couple of um, uh, um, uh, reptiles and beautiful little red belly black snake. Uh, some photos of that one, which I was pretty pleased with as well. So, just expanding into different areas slowly, expanding those skills. It's a never-ending it's- process. It is, and by the sound of what you were saying off air before we started recording, you had a you had a wonderful time, and that's the whole point of it—to have fun, isn't it? To have fun. Well, this time I did. Excellent. Well, I haven't had much fun. Well, I sort of have, you know. What <laughs> slaving away? You know, some of us slave away, as you said, um, and others just gallivant around and um, head off into the bush and do photography. And um, yes, I'll have to pull out the camera again, Mark, and and get stuck into it. And um, I will be doing that shortly. And I've got a couple of ideas. I've got a couple of ideas. I mean, I'll be trying to do some street photography and a bit of landscape and touristy sort of photography when I'm heading off on a couple of trips over the next few months. But I've got a couple of other ideas which I haven't spoken to you about. So I'll, I'll, I'll Dump them on you when after I've taken a few pics, Mark, and you can um, let you know what you think of them. Every single time you've come up with this like line that you've got a, just some vague ideas, you always come out with some beautiful pictures. So I'm really looking forward to the results of your little experiment. I will. Actually, it reminds me of another experiment I will be doing with photography too, yes. I <laughs> just sort of something else that potentially happening. Yes, I will fill you in as it occurs, Mark. Well, Tell you what, I'm going to jump into my first news story. I'm in a, I'm in a, I'm in a rush tonight. You are in a hurry. <laughs> a date with Annie must be waiting. Um, no. Well, let me let me backtrack a bit. It was, um, as I mentioned to you, my eldest daughter's twenty second birthday. Mark, gee, it, it's making me feel old. And when I go <laughs> and teach, and um, to the vet veterinary students or to the to the veterinary nurses or technicians, I think, gee, they're they're getting younger and younger every year, and they're now <laughs> they're now certainly um, certainly potentially the age or young or, or, or much younger than my my children now. So it does make me feel ancient, Mark. And the sad thing is, I had to get a working with children's permit the <laughs> other day as well because for teaching with the uh, the veterinary nurses, the technicians, some of them are under eighteen. And here in Victoria, I think it's the same in your your state. Um, um, 
you now need to have basically a police check, a separate sort of police check where you have to get a, a little photo card made up and it says you've been approved to to work with people under under 18. So I've got that as well, Mark. So, um, yeah, I'm feeling validated. very old. And I'm validated. Oh, I'm validated and I'm, 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 I'm looking very seriously at um, different styles of walking sticks <laughs> and which, which one I should be getting, Mark, um, whether I should go make my own um, on, my, on a lathe or, or should I be going for a, a, little, a little bit of a, you know, a, um, a something that might fit in the Lord of the Rings and get, just try and find something in the bush and, um, you know, use that. A bit of a craggly, scraggly looking, looking um, stick, Mark. So, well, I know what goes yes. better with your personality. <laughs> Yeah, well, we'll leave it. There. We'll leave it there. So let's move on to my first news story, and it was a very interesting news story, Mark. I, don't, I forget where I found. Oh, yes, I found it from Mother Nature Network, as usual. <laughs> um, and it's a story about the time that scientists put a ferret where a ferret should never go. And um, I don't know about you, Mark, but they put some ferrets in some interesting places over the years. Um, or maybe perhaps my clients are slightly different than your clients. Um, and this was the day that they put a ferret up a giant particle accelerator, Mark. Um, <laughs> and um, <laughs> back in 1971, true story, true story, in 1971, the largest machine in the world was well the the um <clears throat> the short name for it is called Fermi Lab F E R M I L A B and I'll put a, a a cross post to the actual website there. It is or was and still is I think a two hundred billion electron volt proton synchrotron particle accelerator, and it wasn't working um, because its pipes were clogged. <laughs> So, isn't it? Um, isn't it this up. story is a classic because <laughs> the brightest, uh, you know, nuclear scientists, the, the the smartest minds in the world are working at Fermilab. They design the biggest machine in the world, the proton synchrotron particle accelerator, and they don't design it well enough that they can clean the pipes without without a ferret <laughs> as a pipe cleaner. Yes. So, <laughs> Felicia was the name of the ferret that they had to train, Mark, because um, the problem was it was too dark in there and she didn't, when she, they first shoved her up the um, <laughs> vacuum tube, which is four miles long, Mark, um, because it was all clubbed with sort of all sorts of guns there. And they were literally, they trained her um, to to drag along a, um, a bit of a, well, the equivalent of a rag, basically, and they were going to use her as a pipe cleaner. But when they first threw her up the pipe, um, it was too dark in there and she, she stopped. So they had to then go back to... Um, designing sort of a ferret-friendly section and try and desensitise her and, and eventually work out a way that would um, convince her that it's okay to, to do it. And then she ended up going through progressively longer sections and tunnels until they did put her in one of the 300-foot section. Each section was 300 foot long and she worked very well and um, she uh, headed up and down and she was boring out the um, all the gunge and the conduits that, um, and she had a great time. And, um, yeah, so she became very famous. Um, this was back in 1971. And um, I'm sad to say that she became ill and they said she um, was taken to the vet and she died um, <laughs> and in 1972. But they didn't really talk much about that and I was a bit peeved that they didn't um, didn't talk about what happened to her. Um, and, but, other- um, but she did... She did. Sorry, Mark. She did retire. Retire after she did her scrubbing, and um, she lived out her remaining days in what they said was ferret bliss, eating a steady diet of chicken, liver, fish heads, and raw hamburger, which was her favourite. Um, and um, until she probably ended up with probably insulinoma or something, Mark, from um, all the crap they were feeding her. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's my first news. Well, there story, were two Mark. quick things about that that um, I just I know we're trying to be quick, but I wanted to point out that um, that the same brilliant minds that designed tubes that they couldn't clean without a ferret also popped a ferret in there, and then quickly realised that their four miles of of pipe that they had to design a specially fitted ferret diaper to prevent uh, cleaning everything and then dirtying it up again. <laughs> Yes, yes, that's right. It's um, it's um, 
Yeah, it's a bizarre story. It's a, you couldn't make it up. I mean, the the the, the amazing thing about that formula is that it went on to be part of. Um, um, they discovered some pretty amazing findings um, with that formula, and um, you know, as you well know, Mark, um, they s- discovered the bottom quark the top quark and the tor neutrino at Fermilab. And if you didn't know, you do know it now. Um, so, and we should thank a little Felicia, the ferret, uh, for helping clean out the giant particle accelerator. So there you go. Well, that leads me not at all well onto my, <laughs> um, and, and I, you've you've uh, given me this topic. This isn't an article I've found, and I wonder whether um, you've given me this because of my interest in dolphins or because I'm starting to lose my memory. This story is also from a Mother Nature Network and talks about dolphins suffering from Alzheimer's disease. Um, and uh, it's it, I found it a fascinating article because it uh, did point out that um, that uh, Alzheimer's disease, um, that uh, really stressful neurological disorder that strikes humans over the age of 65, um, it was thought of for a long time as to being restricted uh, to humans. Uh, but as it turns out, um, uh, it would appear that... Um, that we're not the only ones. We're not alone. Yeah. Um, so uh, some recent uh, science alert recently reports that dolphins have been found dead on beaches um, with Alzheimer uh, analog plaques in their brain. Um, so the the um, my once again, if I explain this incorrectly, just smash the uh, send button and correct me, listeners. But um, my understanding is Alzheimer's the result of plaques of uh, um, uh, forming, plaques of amyloid form- forming in various places in our brains, those br- those of us that are suffering from it. And um, one of the m- ways that these plaques uh, can form is that a um, molecule, um, the molecule is beta-methylamino-L-alanine, um, inserts itself in Instead of um, alanine uh, and maybe lysine in various proteins, and causes them to fold in an unusual pattern, and then um, then those unusual proteins get deposited in the brain, and 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 certainly that's a mechanism of action that happens um, in humans, um, and BMM. BMAA uh, is a molecule that's produced by cyano algae by blue-green algal blooms and top uh, predators, top, um, you know, top of the pyramid predators obviously concentrate these uh, bioactive agents um, that are, you know, increasingly concentrated at each trophic level. Um, And so dolphins being at the very top get a massive dose and uh, as a consequence end up with Alzheimer's. And this may explain why some of them um, in their you know, aged confusion, swim up on the beach. I don't think it's a universal explanation, but I think it may well explain why some dolphins do this. The interesting thing is that not all human um, Alzheimer's can be directly connected to the BMAA protein, Um, but certainly it is, um, it's something that uh, people who partake of uh, shark fin soup, uh, shark fin um, has been recognised as a particular, uh, particularly high source of the neurotoxin BMAA. Um, and so people who get stuck into the uh, shark fin soup may well be exposing themselves to um, Alzheimer's-like clinical signs at an earlier age. So it's interesting that um, I sub- intuitively anything that has a complicated brain, I would have thought, um, would have been at risk of uh, protein like plaques, amyloid plaques being laid down in it at some point and that causing uh, neurodegenerative signs. But it's interesting that my intuition um, is proved correct, that there are other species that get those uh, um, lesions and probably the clinical signs as well, Brendan. Yes, it was a very good article that, and it was um, it, it um, crossed um, 
it was quoted from the actual research published in PLOS One, um, and they have the link to that, it, the Mother Nature Network article there, yeah. So looks like I've, I need to stop taking my um, shark cartilage pills, Mark, um, for my for my knee. But, yeah, it is a bit... It is a bit of a worry, isn't it? Um, it is a bit of a worry. Gee, you you really crack the um, the, the, the serious <laughs> stories there, Mark, don't you? You're, you, well, you really smash someone. I, I, I have left the next <laughs> most serious story for you to deliver. Well, as you know, I'm, I'm into yoga uh, <laughs> from the last few stories we've had, and um, I'm happy to report, Mark, that um, the Lake District Lake District in the UK, um, a hotel there, has launched Lima yoga classes, Mark. Of course they have. Um, and um, there's some fantastic pictures there of these lemurs doing the yoga or, or what um, we we'd anthropomorphise as a yoga um, pose there, um, not the downward dog. It looks but, that um, last photo looks doing... like it's got a, a – uh, there's several lemurs doing the squat and arm open, but there's one downward dog over the back. Oh, there is. No, actually, there's one lemma looking like it's peeing all over one of the yoga um, people there. So, yes, they've this, um, what can I say? And what are they calling it? They're calling it, um, what was the Lamoga. name they called it for? Lamoga. Lamoga, yeah, Lima Yoga Classes um, at a Lake District Hotel and Spa. <laughs> Lake District Hotel oh, and Spa. Yeah. And and it's and, and they they classified as one of their sessions. It's it's called Meet the Wildlife Wellness Activity Mark, um, where you can sit on your yoga mat in the middle of the paddock there, while it's raining, in the Lake District. I, I spent a fair bit of time working in the Lake District, so um so, so um doing locums out that way, Mark. It's a lovely, lovely place in the UK, but gee. It's a bit grey and dark <laughs> and depressing sometimes. <laughs> Sorry for all our listeners um, in the Lake District, but um, you may or may not agree with me. Send an email to vetgurus at gmail.com. Um, so perhaps it's a good idea that they have Lima Yoga there, but um, I don't know. I think this is taking it one step too far. My Mark, criticism, Brendan, is that if now you're a great yoga f- practitioner and fan, um, so correct me if I'm wrong, but um, yoga tends to be one of those um, inward, you know, introspective, um, empty the mind, contemplate on the inner spaces, position your body in certain ways. And it's sort of counter, um, just it's inconsistent then to uh, have these um, uh, animals, whether they be goats or alpacas or lemurs wandering around i don't know that that instinctively to me it doesn't necessarily enhance and focus the meditative nature of the yoga experience um it what i'm trying to say is i think it's a bit of a gimmick brendan yes well when i read a couple of the sentences there mark i did my it, it all get shot down in flames, and the two two sentences there are that um, when you watch lemurs, they do so, some form of the poses naturally, that typical pose warming their bellies in the sunshine. And the sentence that really got my got my goat um, is the one where they say, "I don't think you ever see an unhappy zookeeper." <laughs> We spend all our time with the animals. I tell you <laughs> what, I worked as a zoo vet um, for many years, Mark, and I met a lot of grumpy zookeepers. <laughs> I can tell you that much. So, yes. So, um, with with all due respect to the zookeepers that um, know me and um, I, I know, then um, yeah, I, I think this but, story is a. Why, why did you put? Well, that it in leads. It segues story. <laughs> much much more neatly than my last segue to my story, which is um, which is uh, that um. If you want to feel uh, um, a recent study um, in the frontiers of psychology um, revealed that um, that by a number of indices, if you want to feel happier, um, then spending time in nature is a good thing. Now, I know that many people who um, who suffer from uh, uh, depression or uh, other mental illnesses will regularly be told that they just need to go camping or get out in nature. Um, and it's not that simple, I know. Um, I'm not pretending for a second that it is. But I do think for most of us that don't have clinical mental health issues but are just feeling a bit, um, well, 
stretched, so we shall we say. Um, we've all sort of felt that um, spending, you know, I just spent the whole weekend and I know how well it made me feel. Um, I think we've all sort of sensed that uh, connection with nature does make us feel better, even if you're poisoning the experience by doing yoga at the same time. Um, but this study uh, actually did take some measurements of uh, cortisol um, and a number of other um, indices of stress. Um, and as little as 20 minutes of a nature experience significantly reduced cortisol levels. Um, and the effect was most efficient between 20 and 30 minutes and um, and did not, was not dependent on exercise. So people, um, city dwellers, uh, were asked to go and have um, uh experiences, nature experiences, pretty much just go to the local park. Um, and that's when the samples were collected, saliva samples to measure uh, cortisol levels. And um, and there was clear evidence that uh, only uh, 20 minutes was enough to uh, markedly lower the secretion of cortisol and, uh, and found that um, these experiences related to improved emotional well-being, um, and uh, and and that physical activity wasn't necessarily a, a critical component. Um, I found that uh, well an excellent. Uh, you know how I am for excuses, Brendan, and just as I need another excuse to spend some more time in the in the natural world, here comes this article along, which um, suggests that um, that I need to do it more. <laughs> It validates what you were doing. Yes, yes. I mean, the sad thing is it does mention about the, the fact that in many cities they're removing parkland and, and putting up more housing, et cetera, and that, that's certainly the case in even the outer sort of suburban area that, that I live in, Mark, where they're, you know, they're just putting up more and more things and less and less of those spaces that you can get out there and enjoy a bit of... Um, Green. Enjoy a bit of... Um, the fresh air, yeah. Um, one of the links that article had um, to Mark was um, a um, to Shinrin Yoku, um, which is the the Japanese art of forest bathing. Is the um, is the um, translation there? So I'm um, spending time in the forest, and there's a book um, written about it, um, or there's a whole supposed Japanese art of forest bathing, and it's a Related article that talks about the importance of getting out there in, um, into the bush um, or the forest, and also um, bringing that into your workplace. As they do mention that, but I don't think that'll be nowhere near as quite as effective. And they have a picture of of somebody sitting next to a computer with a with a potted plant next to them. I don't think it'd be quite the same effect on the on lowering the um, stress levels there, Mark. Um, so yes, yes. Um, no wonder you're feeling so relaxed. You've been spending a fair bit I've of time. Had more than my there, share of the weekend. Aliquots, Brendan. Yes, and perhaps that's why I'm a little bit on edge at the moment. I need to to get out there and um, get away from the get away from the lemurs and get out near the um, near the trees. Um, let's jump into our main topic, Mark. Um, since we've um, almost <laughs> run out of time already, and I did mention to you at the start that we're going to. Be very quick with our news stories and get stuck into the main topic. I've obviously uh, gone awry very quickly um, with that. And our main topic this week is something we have yet to cover, which is good because I know we've sort of followed up on a couple of um, more detailed second episodes of some topics. So we're going to talk about basic fish care. Um, and I think we'll keep it exactly that, Mark. So we're going to chat about our thoughts on on setting up a basic um, aquarium um, to have a pet fish, and some of our some of our um, pros and cons of doing that, and some of our um, pitfalls that we see with clients when they're when they're setting up an aquarium to to house their fish. So, I do. Want do you want to, to kick it off? Just Mark? start by saying that I think this is a. Um, what's the right way to describe it? I think there's some areas of veterinary medicine um, that. Uh, that for a variety of reasons we underservice, and um, and typically what happens as veterinarians is that um, some other um, maybe non-veterinary uh, uh, 
person, people, company um, steps in and starts to provide that service in the vacuum that we've created. And certainly this uh, this is an example that good advice about the health of fish um, most people would immediately turn to a fish store um, and they would probably be able to do the the discussion we're about to have today about basic fish care. But as soon as it gets more complex than that, um, I think like most pet stores, uh, um, many, many of the people who work in aquarium stores will quickly be out of their depth. They may have um, an extensive understanding of particular diseases, but they won't have a veterinarian's broad understanding. And, and so I think it's a good thing to leap in here. I know that compared to many of our other um, unusual or exotic or avian pets, um, this is probably one of the areas where there's a big departure. We, you and I have talked before about the way that um, the general principles of uh, small animal companion animal medicine apply generally across our other species. And we have to understand the peccadilloes and uh, specific circumstances that apply to the species we want to look at. But fish probably represent, you know, the while we still apply those same basic principles, um, the biggest departure from the the, uh, the application of those principles we see when we're looking at aquariums. Um, and so I do encourage people to uh, uh, leap in, metaphorically, not uh, um, literally, and, um, and have a go with uh, fish medicine. Um, and the first place to start is um, to have a look at some basic fish care. Um, and I, you know, I love aquariums. I really enjoy the, the, uh, the, and we're just talking about um, the connection with nature. And I think aquariums represent a window, a literal window, into um, some underwater ecosystems that really are um, a very soothing and allow clients to become, allow people who own them, aquarium owners, to become very, uh, um, to develop an understanding of the complex nature of the relationship between an animal and their environment, even if it is a confined one like an aquarium, it still gives them a, a big chance to understand what might be happening in the larger environment. So I think that uh, they're an excellent, excellent um, uh, thing for people to have. Um, so uh, the, maj the majority of uh, um, basic fish care we're going to talk about, we'll leave outside ponds at the moment um, and we'll have a bit of a talk about aquariums. And I think the first thing I'd say about aquariums is that it's harder to look after little ones. The temptation always is to get a very small aquarium uh, because obviously it's less expensive um, and it probably requires less infrastructure all over, but um, they're more susceptible to influences outside um, the, temp the uh, aquarium, the temperature in particular, uh, but also very small changes in water chemistry turn out to be big changes when you only have a small volume of water that it's happening in. So my first tip, tip number one, is to get a decent sized aquarium to encourage the, the uh, chemistry and thermal stability. Absolutely. And relating to that, I think people often underdo the filter filtration system that they have in these aquariums. And I always recommend that they over-engineer it and they end up purchasing a, a, a filter that's more than adequate for the volume of water in the particular aquarium that they end up purchasing because... Well, going back one step, as with most of our unusual pets, most of the problems we see um, in, in fish medicine are also related to inadequate or inappropriate husbandry, especially in people who, who are purchasing a, you know, a fish tank and, um, for the first time and have no experience with it and they go down to the to pet shop and they, or the aquarium and they purchase a, a tank and a fish and they put them both together and take them home and they end up with um, some dead fish um, in several weeks and we need to have a little chat about the new tank syndrome don't we Mark as well as part of this discussion and the recommendations as far as um, 
Well, let's chat about that now. Um, our new tank syndrome is, is the condition or the, the, the generic term for if, if somebody does exactly that where they purchase a, an aquarium um, from scratch and, and um, set it up at home and, and purchase a fish at the same time and put everything together, potentially what can happen is several days or several weeks later because the system has, hasn't had a chance to e- e- um settle itself down and the good bacteria and the good bugs um, to work in the system. We can have a, a big spike several days to weeks later in, in some of the toxic compounds in the system, especially in ammonia, and we end up with all the fish dying. So the, the general recommendations are get the tank first, have it running, get it going properly, do your water quality testing, um, seed that tank with ideally some gravel or some cage furniture from a from an existing aquarium. And usually you can tell if it's a good aquarium where you purchase, a, purchase the um, aquarium you take home from when they do exactly that. They take some gravel or some of the material from, from an existing um, aquarium um, in, in the store and they use that to seed the health of the good bacteria and the good um, that help break down those nitrogenous wastes um, in in the tank, and take that tank home and set it up and have it running for for several days to several weeks, before you then go back and purchase the fish and then bring them home again. And the difficulty there is, Mark, and you can see how it occurs, is that you know people are excited about buying a fish in an aquarium and they want to take them both home that same day that they. That's um, my second tip, Brendan. Don't store. impulse buy. I think you've you've highlighted. It just perfectly. The um, <clears throat> the uh, the best aquarium. The first thing is to talk to uh, more than one aquarium store. Um, don't just go into one and impulse buy from them. Um, talk to a few. Um, talk to them about uh, cycling their tank, as you've highlighted, um, establishing those uh, denitrifying bacteria. And it is a, it's a, a um, one of the mistakes when I talk to clients about this topic. You talk to them about filtration and their mind naturally is drawn to particulate filtration. They want to get the little bits out of the water. Um, but as you and I know, they're far less dangerous than the the things that are dissolved in the water. Um, and the fil- process of uh, biological filtration where those beds of denitrifying bacteria, um, the nitrosomas and the nitrobacter species, inoculated from a, a, a previously cycled aquarium, um, they do break down uh Ammonia, in particular, but uh, uh, nitrites and uh, nitrates and nitrites into less toxic compounds, um, and um, and it does take some time for that to happen. And if you stick, as you said, just whack it all together, you will get new tank syndrome, and you'll lose those beautiful fish you've invested in. And I and I often stress that that um, process of cleaning the filter um, people often or regularly make the mistake of of thinking that they need to sterilize the filter and regardless of what filter they have they will take out that filter material whether it's plastic beads or it's a foam or or, or whatever sort of product that that is f- mechanically filled in as you mentioned um, um, the gunge through there and they they re- even just rinsing it under cold tap water can be enough to kill those good bugs um, that are helping um, that whole that whole nitrogen cycle um, process so my general recommendations to clients as far as physically cleaning um, their filter is well get back to basics and I and, and the way I explain it to the clients is I, I, I say they the filter does two things it does mechanical filtration it filters out the gunge and that's the bit that you may physically may need to remove that gunge from the filter um, filter filtration material um, and it does biological filtration which is the good bugs converting bad stuff to less bad stuff Um, and so when we want to do the cleaning of the mechanical filter um, and and get that gunge off it I usually suggest they get a a bucket of water from the actual tank of the aquarium um, with the aquarium water in it then they unpack the filter and, and literally just just squeeze out the filter material or slosh it through that aquarium um, water in the bucket um, to get the gunge off that filter and then pop the filter back together and pop it back in. So that's what I usually recommend, Mark. I don't know whether – have you got any other sort of tips on how people should should approach cleaning the, well, the only other filter tip within that, the filter? Um, uh, you sort of alluded to 
before was that um, uh, uh, there are a number of formula to give you a bit of an idea of the size of the filter and the flow through it that might accommodate particular size aquariums. And you suggested that maybe being a bit generous and not just getting over the bare minimum with those formulae. But the larger filters often have stages in them um, and they, that has that uh, you know direct effect that you can um, clean one part of the filter um, and as you said, you should do it carefully, um, but maybe leaving the remaining uh, uh, beds in the filter material alone during that cleaning so that they're still completely functional with their bacteria. And um, there's two other quick things that's worth mentioning about that. Um, because it has a direct, uh, yes. uh, because treatment um, is something that we frequently leap to, we'll, we'll you know, do a postmortem on a fish and we'll find an unusual bug in the kidneys often when we do that postmortem. And, um, and then we'll want to treat the aquarium with antibiotics because we've found a, what we think is a causative agent. Um, that's going to be bad, Brendan, isn't it? What's going to happen? Well, we can upset the whole, I was going to say apple cart, we can upset the whole aquarium with that. So, yes, um, I, th I think, yeah, the basics are, are exactly that, just just concentrating on making the system work and, and keeping it work and not um, sloshing around antibiotics or products that we shouldn't be using in them. Um, so if we, I know we've sort of, talked about um, our filter filtration for the last 10 minutes or so but it is such an important thing and the, the second part of the checking the water quality or the filtration is exactly that it's checking the water quality mark and that's the the other the other key factor that I think people who purchase a new aquarium need to do they need to do regular water testing and there's there's two or three main components they need to to regularly do as part of that testing and a lot of aquarium test kits will test for 10 or 20, potentially up to 10 or 15 um, items there. But there's, there's several key ones, isn't there, Mark, that they need to really make sure that they do test regularly because if they're not testing, they won't know if things like the ammonia are, are spiking and, and, and causing potential ill health in in their fish. You've so, already alluded so to, to the first one, that? and that is the, um, the level, level of ammonia, that that should be one of the absolute water quality tests that uh, um, that every aquarist um, is pretty comfortable doing. And, and it is a little bit overwhelming, the test kits that you can buy um, do tend to have a whole battery of tests and each one of the tests has two or three drops that you've got to put into little test tubes and assess the colorimetric changes. Um, but I do think that um, focusing on the ammonia is the first one. And, and uh, the next one I look for um, is to try and get uh, an idea of the pH because um, definitely the water uh, chemistry and particularly the um, amount of ammonia but other um, uh, hydrogen donating molecules um, will start to, um, to have an effect on the pH and that has a direct um, irritant and damaging effect particularly on the um, the gills the re respiratory surfaces of the fish and additionally damages the uh, protective uh, mucoid slime layer um, and so uh, that uh, those um, direct effects of the uh, faulty pH uh, can immediately lead to lesions and ill health. So they're the first two I'd go for. Yep and related to that I usually recommend that they check for also that and you mentioned them earlier the nitrite and the nitrate um, which is that part of that nitrogen cycle and we usually send clients home with a little, little one page handout that that talks about the basics of the nitrogen cycle and how that that nitrogenous waste so the uneaten food feces and urine um, can end up um, causing causing problems there if if the whole system isn't working properly so we need to check the water quality what else um, um, it's and we could talk all night we could do a whole series of podcasts on water quality go on you go you go um, keep talking yep well, let's ju let's jump on to some of the other key factors that we consider in, in a in a decent um, aquarium setup. And as always, Mark, I always think about lighting in these situations, and, and we do need um, 
decent lighting with them. And and the question then is what is what is proper lighting or adequate lighting for for an aquarium? And that's where it can get quite, I suppose, a little bit or more than a little bit controversial there, Mark, but I don't think there's any doubt in that as far as animals go, they need a daytime and a nighttime. So my first comment would be that we don't want to have white light shining into that aquarium 24 hours a day. So they do require a daytime and a nighttime cycle, um, and and it is exactly that. Um, but as far as the other spectrum of light um, that, that potentially we should be supplying, um, well, what are your thoughts I've got, on um, that, Mark? Probably two quick things to say. The first one is that um, full spectrum is best, that the, the uh, closer approximation you can make to um, natural sunlight, um, the better things seem to go. And um, that's probably a broad um, uh, philosophical statement that applies, you know, beyond aquariums and to many species. The second thing is that I've kept many aquariums and um, and I've regularly used those uh, um, over the years, those uh, fluorescent uh, lights over the top and a variety of those, the same sorts of ones that we recommend for our reptiles, the full spectrum uh, fluorescent tubes. Um, but over the last little bit, I've kept some aquariums with the um, the uh, the array of diodes um, and those, uh, they certainly produce a very uh, um, intense uh, light, um, and they they definitely produce a, a, a much closer um, approximation of full spectrum for aquariums, um, and so there that's the direction I've sort of been moving in with my tanks, Brendan. The the uh, the newer uh, panels of diodes, um, and they they don't uh, they seem to be more reliable. They last longer, um, and they don't um, they don't. Uh, uh, um, use as much power to run. They're very efficient. Um, so I think. Do, and do you know what sort of spectrum um, I, it is? Like they're kicking. Well, out? I haven't uh, whacked a um, you know the the uh, Francis Bain light um, spectrum uh, spec. What's the actual device called? Oh, um, I, well, I think UV it's some. Um, that's yes. Yeah. Or the solar um, I think that um, the they solar. do provide excellent yeah. uh, uh, UVB. Um, and, um, but I don't, I couldn't tell you with surety. Um, I haven't, how I haven't looked at scientific papers that confirm their, uh, the, the similarity to um, sunlight. But I can tell, um, my intuition tells me when I can find those papers that they will confirm a closer approximation because things in the aquarium, the plants, the uh, corals, um, uh, they, those things do better under those lights, um, which, like I said, I'll be keen to find out how close they are to full spectrum and uh, but I have a sneaking suspicion I can I will confirm in the next weeks that, that it's very close. Yes. The related aspect of that that I'd like to sort of briefly mention and we had a bit of a chat to this with some of the students um, last week is is related to that sort of in um, lighting as far as not not just a daytime and a nighttime um, in some of the some of the setups in research labs and and some of the um, zoos and and um, organizations where they're trying to do a more naturalistic setup and providing environmental enrichment um, as best they can they even vary the lighting situations for for instance some some tropical species of fish where yeah. they're where they're simulating thunderstorms and lightning mark um, and, and and those sort of aspects and and then following on from that and we haven't mentioned this things like tides so providing sort of tidal activity within the aquariums um, and and, and estuary type um, tides as well for fish that live in an estuary sort of um, system. So it's it, and it makes perfect sense that you're trying to mimic as best you can what sort of environmental conditions that particular fish species would be involved in. And um, I find it fascinating some of the, the some of the things they've been doing with that. And that's having underwater, you know, having underwater fans that, that provide sort of tidal situations and, and the lights to, to, and I'm sure you could yes. mimic it with your diode type lights as far as sort of lightning effects and that as well. So, so the, um, the other pieces of uh, hardware, I suppose, that uh, most 
uh, you know, the most common fish that are going to be kept in aquariums um, are likely to need some thermal support to the water. They probably, um, uh, tropical fish make up the bigger portion of the fish that are kept and uh, and so uh, some quality heating element. And in my experience, that's probably been, you know, the, the failure of the the heating element in an otherwise well-managed tank is often, um, you know, something that will slip past people. The the alert, the little light that tells you the heater is working well and main the thermostat in it is maintaining the appropriate temperature of the water. Um, unless you've got a thermometer in there and you're confident that you're in the right temperature zone for the species you're housing, um, the the uh, the heating element may short and fail um, and the, the heater stop and then you've got uh, water that's much more variable in temperature and colder and that can impact on the fish. So a good quality heater is another piece of the hardware you need, I think, for most of those tropical fish. Yes, and I think part, part of monitoring that heater mark is having a decent thermometer that um, separately reads the, the water temperature there because um, a lot of the simple heaters are those little stick heaters that are pretty crude sort of measurement there. And um, the other measurement that people often rely on, um, which they shouldn't be, is those um, the little magnetic sort of strip that they just shove on the side of the um, side of the on the outside of the aquarium and. Uh, personally I don't think they're very accurate um, and they can be way out sometimes as far as measuring the actual water temperature that the fish is experiencing uh, experiencing in the aquarium mark so yes so heating so we want we want to do we, have, we want an adequate um, an adequate um, lighting situation we want adequate heater in there we want to have um, a decent filter in there that we're, we're, we're cleaning appropriately um, and not over cleaning and sterilizing it um, what else what, are, what other things would you sort of recommend as general furniture um, and environmental enrichment mark I mean the, the, the comment I always make to clients about it is that um, a lot of people purchase an aquarium and some fish because they feel it's relaxing to have the fish sitting in their little aquarium in their kitchen or their lounge room while they're while they're cooking dinner and they look over at the fish and they it's a bit like you know um, yoga mark um, and they, they feel relaxed about the whole thing but the bad news is that fish may be stressed out of its little fishy brain because it doesn't have anywhere to hide um, because the humans like to look at the fish so they don't provide any visual barriers for that fish or any of the aquatic organisms if we, if we expand it to you know turtle enclosures for instance um, where that fish or fishes um, can get away and um, they need to have a physical barrier a little hide area mark that they can or more than one hide area where they can get away and, and sort of do their little fishy things in quiet. And in, you're exactly in, in right. And privacy. the typical things uh, that uh, people would use would be um, maybe some driftwood and there's uh, uh, good quality driftwood. I would just um, ask people to uh, ask their – a lot of driftwood comes from – uh, that's harvested from wild mangroves, um, and uh, and I don't think that's a particularly sustainable source. And so, um, driftwood that uh, um, is collected um, from a sustainable location, um, there's obviously some gorgeous uh, rocks that uh, are retailed for aquariums, and obviously um, just confirming that they're um, of suitable chemistry for the the. Uh, um, the aquarium that you're using, you, you uh, don't want to stick a big chunk of limestone into uh, um, um, some of the South American fish prefer a slightly acidic environment and uh, a big chunk of limestone is going to make that hard to maintain. Um, and and uh, the third one, uh, a series of, um, of plants suitable for um, the, uh, the water quality and the water movement. Um, and there's certainly many species of uh, fish in particular uh, um, types of tanks that, uh, you know, the one, the Rift Lake cichlids from Africa are popular aquarium fish and they don't do so well with plants in the aquarium. And so uh, just uh, appropriate substrate and uh, um, and rocks arranged in a safe, a non-collapsing fashion, um, they're probably the type of furniture that most aquariums need to set up. Yes, and... 
the related factor that that if 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 those plants are not doing well, whether they're being destroyed or they're just not coping with that system, that puts another load on that um, system as well, as well as the sort of waste there, and we can end up with with issues there. And the the semi related process with that is that the turtles that like to um you know play around and destroy plants um and eat some of the plant as well it, it really struggles to to it puts a lot of um effort on the um on the, filtration the decay, system, of, the decay of those plants um, adds significant well, to the the biological load, which leads me to my last absolutely point. i know you're trying to finish brendan um i was going to quickly mention feeding um and uh and I think this is a really important point that it's very important to realise that um, that they don't need much food. Um, almost every uh, aquarium that I um, aquarium novice that I talk to puts bucket loads more food in than the fish are actually going to eat, and most of that food will um, uh, um, decay. It'll probably sink to the bottom, not always, uh, but it will decay and add another load on the biological filter. It will produce more waste um, that has to be broken down. And so it, that combination of things, uh, dying plants, um, a, a stressed biological filter and excessive food um, can all contribute to a, a, a a filter system that fails to remove those dangerous chemicals and causes problems for the fish. So how much how much do you feed a fish, Mark? I mean, the classic the classic comment from a client will be, "I was told to feed as much as the size of the and, eye." And that's of the probably fish that you know um, a rough good idea. The 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 uh, approximate size of the eye of the fish should be a ballpark guide to the the uh, volume that uh, that might be fed every second or third day. <laughs> an eye for an eye, Mark. An eye for an eye. No, there's no, no there isn't a joke there, is there? Um, well, we've done a little bit. We better get out of here before <laughs> I, uh, before I, before um, before somebody laughs. Um, so, basic fish care. Yeah, it's. I, I think we need to spend a few more episodes digging deeper into fish setup and fish medicine and some of the common diseases we see in fish and then we can chat about fish sedation examination anesthesia and some of the surgical procedures both of us have had to do over the years with with fish and um you know a, a good example of that is um our good friend um tristan who we um recorded well it was a few months ago wasn't it mark or a few weeks ago and we, we've we have a little special coming up on on tristan who um is a, a, celebrity, a veterinarian a who, who did uh, a lump a celebrity vet and who did a, a a lump removal off a goldfish and um well it's a it's a podcast episode i'm sure everybody will love because we'll be releasing that soon ish um before the end of the year certainly um we've got that one in the bank to release soon um and um yeah we'll talk a little bit about the surgical techniques and some of the common problems we see in fish and how to how to correct them and um how to deal with them how to euthanize a fish mark we need to chat about so there's lots more fishy episodes to come in the future which will be in the future so we'll talk to you next week thanks for listening